prosecuted, wrongfully convicted, wrongfully sentenced, and is now wrongfully incarcerated. But our bloodlust prevents us from acknowledging that. And I understand that as a state court trial judge who has tried murder cases, I understand that the pain, the pain of victims, I understand the desire of colleagues to get revenge. However, justice is never about revenge. We do not allow victims or the friends or partners of the murdered to decide what justice is. Justice is doing right, not getting revenge. And we need to understand the difference between the two. Judge Wendell Griffin, there's so much more to talk about. Um, Judge Griffin wrote the essay, uh, Finding Justice for Both Maureen Faulkner and Mumia Abu-Jamal, uh, referring to the widow of the slain Philadelphia police officer, Daniel Faulkner. Um, we will link to your piece, and we will also do a part two conversation with you. As you come to the end of your judicial career, uh, you'll be retiring at the end of December after 24 years on the bench. Uh, you are also the pastor of the New Millennium Church and author of The Fierce Urgency of Prophetic Hope. In part two of our conversation, we're going to talk about your illustrious career on the bench. People should check it out at democracynow.org. That does it for our show, Democracy Now!, produced with Renee Feltz. My You're listening to KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM. The time is 8 a.m. Next up is Wednesday Talk Radio with Paul Rowland. Good morning, everybody. This is KBO Community Radio. This is Wednesday Talk Radio, and I am Paul Rowland, your host for the hour. I am very much looking forward to talking with my guest this morning, Medea Benjamin, author of a, a book recently out, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. I uh, will bring her up in just a moment. After, I remind you that the, that opening song, first of all, was... Um, by Country Joe McDonald, uh, Peace on Earth. Isn't that what they start talking about around this time of year?
do we really mean it? How do we make it real? Anyway, that's uh, from his album of the same name, uh, Peace on Earth, from 1984. I also want to remind you that this is our end-of-the-year membership drive. That's how we, as a community radio station, keep on the air by your support, becoming a member, or just donating, however you want to do it. We are at $18,320 of our $70,000 goal. Can you help us make it to $20,000 or more by the end of this hour? We would really appreciate it. All you got to do is text KBOO to 44321. That's KBOO to the number 44321. Or you can go to our website at kboo.org. Seems to have changed. When I go to, I type in KBOO on the uh, search bar, it goes to kboo.org. It used to be kboo.fm. Maybe they both work. Anyway, that's how you got to do. Text KBOO to 44321 on your mobile device. You can join an anonymous donor of about 50 bucks about an hour ago. Uh, Victor donated over $100 a while back. And Leslie, $500. Thank you, Leslie. And Richard and David in the recent past. Okay, I'm going to remind you of that in a minute. As I said, we have uh, Medea Benjamin. The uh, I'm just going to read a little bit from Wikipedia, if you don't mind, Medea. Hey, uh, you were... Um, uh, you've helped, you founded uh, the group uh, Global Exchange, which I actually didn't remember in San Francisco, a great uh, organization. And you've been involved with United for Peace and Justice. 20 years ago, almost exactly, you and your cohorts uh, got the, uh, founded the feminist anti-war group Code Pink Women for Peace. You've been arrested many times. You've put yourself in harm's way all around the world from Iraq to Palestine, and I don't know where else. Maybe you'll talk a little bit about that. And there's so much more. Good morning, Medea. Good morning. Nice to be on with you both. I'm so glad to have you. And I, I just want to say, I just want to really thank you. I got into your book. I haven't completely finished it, but uh, I, I got enough of it, and I've skimmed the rest to uh, be able to have an intelligent conversation with you. But, you know, I've had, I've talked about this issue uh, with Ray McGovern, with Chris Hedges, uh, with a couple other people and had really good conversations. And I've always elicited some really intelligent callers who point have been pointing out all of the, the guests and the callers, uh, the things you talk about in this book. And yet I just didn't get like the coherent narrative. There's There's something to really seeing the whole story laid out that really has sunk in the 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 reality of what's going on in much more of a way. So I just really appreciate your having written this book with your co-author, who maybe could say a couple words about Nicholas Davies. Uh, yes, I'm glad to hear that, Paul. And I've heard that from quite a number of other people uh, who say that the book really put things in perspective for them and tied a lot of loose ends. Um, Nicholas Davis is a journalist who I've been writing with for years now on a variety of issues. And before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we had been writing about the Ukraine issue. Uh, once Russia invaded, we realized it was important to uh, put our thoughts together quickly and get something out so that we could use the book 
not only to inform people, but use it as a tool for traveling around the country and uh, trying to get an anti-war movement invigorated. Uh, and we've been doing that with what will be a 50-city tour. In fact, I was in Portland. Uh, and uh, it's been a great opportunity to try to answer people's questions and ask them, what are you going to do to try to stop this war? Yeah, I'd like to hear a little bit about how that tour went. Unfortunately, I, I, I missed your stop here. I'm sure some of our listeners caught you, and uh, they've got a leg up on me on that. But I, I always try to get someone I haven't interviewed before who's had a, a, a long history in whatever the field they, they are. Yours is mostly peace and anti-war activism. Uh, how did How did you get into that to begin with? Well, I um, hesitate to uh, reveal my age in saying that I've been <laughs> doing this since I was invo uh, involved in the anti-war movement in Vietnam. But, you know, that's where many of us became so committed to this uh, issue of trying to stop war because we were involved directly in it and our brothers and our uh, boyfriends and our friends were sent off when, when there was a draft. And for me, it was a just a kind of gobsmacked with this idea that your government can lie to you and send people off to kill other people they have no issue with and, uh, and for them to be killed in a conflict that they have no stake in. So, uh, and the idea that your media could be constantly lying to you about winning a war um, when there was no winning to be had. And that has stayed with me for all these years. And unfortunately, while we do have uh, moments of sort of a relative uh, peaceful foreign policy, for the most part, it's just full of one war after another and the spilling of not only blood but our resources that are so needed for other things. So I've been involved in this movement for a long time now and uh, feel at this point it's really something quite different because we're used to the situation being one where it's our government attacking uh, other countries like in the case of Vietnam or Iraq or even Afghanistan, Libya. Uh, this is a very different case and I find that people are extremely confused and people that I've been out on the streets with for years if not decades uh, are really wondering uh, what is going on in Ukraine, have taken the side of sending more weapons to Ukraine and so once again we thought it was so important to try to lay this out and have people see it in the context of both a civil war inside Ukraine where Russia is the aggressor but understand it in a geopolitical war where the U.S. has been the aggressor for a long time and is now reviving this Cold War against Russia. One, one way, there's so much to go over, um, it, even though it's a, a relatively slim book, it still has a, a lot packed in, and there's a lot of history, a lot of politics, a lot of international politics, a lot of Ukraine politics, Russian politics. There's, there's a lot to, to bring together here. One, one way I thought of was, uh, you know, the idea, there's, like, on the one hand, you know, it's just the sort of 
almost unquestioning the, that, uh, you know, it was an unprovoked war that uh, Putin invaded Ukraine and he's a terrible person. And, and I, I, you know, this is all true. And you agree that it, it, he didn't need to. In fact, it was a, a big mistake on on his part and for the whole world. But there, it's a it's a much a bigger question. And on the other hand, there's sort of this almost this air of, air of inevitability once it got started and now that it's grinding on and on and winter's there and people are suffering. But uh, the way I kind of looked at it is missed or lost opportunities to actually avoid it from happening. And I just want to give three, and there's probably more, and maybe you could sort of start on your narrative uh, uh, description of, of, of the, the situation from there. Okay, in the early 1990s with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the supposed end of the Cold War and supposedly a peace dividend that never happened, that was one big missed opportunity where NATO could have redefined itself, etc. And then the mixed one and two accords. And then President Zelensky of Ukraine's landslide victory and his sort of backing off on some of his initial promises to not go in the direction of war. Well, those are all important moments. And uh, let's go back to the 1991. You talked about NATO could uh, redesign itself. Um, our idea is that NATO could have dissolved and should have dissolved because its mission had um, been lost. There's no more Soviet Union to confront. The Warsaw Pact that was the counterpart to NATO had dissolved. Uh, and it would have been an important moment to say, okay, now we're moving into a new era of cooperation and there's no need for NATO, that Europe could have its own a security arrangement with its own countries, if indeed that's what they wanted. But there's no need to have an organization that is really led by the United States and funded in good part by the United States. Um, so unfortunately, it not only didn't it dissolve, but it violated the agreements that it had with Gorbachev to not expand eastward and instead had this enormous expansion where it's now 40 countries as well as other countries that are not uh, de jure members of NATO but are NATO strategic partners like Ukraine which uh, makes it as Zelensky said himself a de facto uh, member of NATO because not only do you have NATO uh, giving military support and um, engaging in training and all kinds of um, uh, military alliances, but also you have uh, countries like Ukraine, uh, part of military exercises that happened, uh, including a recent exercise that was um, a, an exercise in nuclear annihilation of Russia. So it's, the, it's a very aggressive organization. We have a whole chapter in the book and every time somebody says it's a defensive alliance, I think people have to say, no, stop right there. It is an offensive, aggressive military alliance that has proven its aggressiveness in places far away from the Atlantic, including uh, involvement in the invasion of Libya, the overthrow of uh, Gaddafi there, the invasion of Iraq, uh, supporting the U.S. in its 20-year uh, occupation of Afghanistan. Uh, so anyway, yes, that's the 1991, and unfortunately, uh, NATO is still with us and strengthened in this effort now uh, that you have countries like Sweden and Finland 
petitioning to be part of NATO. Uh, then let's see, Paul, you talked about the Minsk agreements. You know, uh, these are so important to understand what happened. And there's a new revelation after a couple of days ago, there was an interview with the uh, former head of Germany, Angela Merkel. So she was in, in um, the Minsk agreement that came about in 2015 was trying to stop the civil war in the Donbass. And uh, France and Germany were part of that agreement between Ukraine and Russia. And so was the UN Security Council. And it was supposed to give autonomy to the separatist uh, breakaway republics in, in the Donbass. Uh, and it never happened. Uh, what happened was that there were observers who came in from uh, the European countries, and that was a good thing. And uh, the number of people who were killed along the, the border there uh, went down significantly when those observers came in in 2015. Uh, but what didn't happen was the political part, the giving the autonomy to those regions. And uh, I brought in the issue of Angela Merkel because in her interview a couple of days ago, she said um, what the Minsk agreement really did was to buy time for Ukraine, and it used that time to build itself up militarily. And uh, she even said, how could Russia trust us if that agreement that was supposed to be uh, to end the conflict really bought time for Ukraine to... Uh, get ready for a conflict in a more favorable um, military position. So I bring that up because it's important, very important to understand that it seems that the Western countries uh, and Ukraine never intended to implement that agreement. Uh, and uh, as uh, Putin responded to Angela Merkel after, she said, trust is at near zero when you look back at peace agreements that were signed, uh, but understand that behind them, there was never an intention to follow through with them. Can I just, let me just interrupt yeah, you, because I just want to read a little bit from your, your book, which really struck me as a, a central point here. This is the chapter, The Success and Failure of the Min Minsk II. The official position of the United States was always that it supported the Min Minsk, II, Minsk II agreement. Its public statements blamed Russia for its failed implementation and highlighted ceasefire violations rather than the more critical problems with the political aspects of the agreement. But the United States also consistently acted as a spoiler, a role that conflict resolution experts often observe outside powers playing in the failure of such peace agreements by quietly incentivizing and supporting its proxy in this case, the Ukrainian government, to pursue military alternatives to the agreed-upon political resolution. While the Obama administration prohibited the transfer of lethal military aid to Ukraine, it sent $75 million in non-lethal military aid in March 2015, right after Minsk II was signed. And then it goes on from there to talk about the, the continual ex escalation of how it basically transitioned from what was supposedly a political agreement to, as you say, a militarization of the conflict. Well, yes, and then Trump came in and he lifted the ban on sending lethal weapons to Ukraine uh, and then started really pouring in um, uh, massive amounts of weapons. 
So it is quite remarkable to look back at that time and think of the lost opportunity instead of really implementing what the uh, international agreement called for. It was a, a, a time to year after year train 10,000 Ukrainian troops, uh, send in new weaponry, train them on that weaponry, and get them ready for a conflict. So while we still have to keep saying we don't, uh, we don't find the Russian invasion justifiable, um, we do have to insist that it was indeed provoked, and um, this is proof that the, uh, the powers that signed that agreement had no intention of implementing it. Well, let's, uh, uh, before we get into maybe a little more into the Ukrainian politics and then to the last point about Zelensky's uh, landslide victory as another opportune moment, I just want to remind people once again that we are in our end-of-the-year membership drive, our annual end-of-the-year membership drive, and we are, are going pretty pretty good. You know, we're, we're going until the, the December 31st, the end of the year, and we've got almost $20,000, but we need to get all the way to the $70,000 mark. And to do that, we need, let's see, we've got 186 donors. Let's see, maybe we can get to 190 by the end of this uh, this show. That's not, a, that's not a, a, a huge goal. Let's see if we can get to maybe 190 donors and $20,000. And you, the way you do that is you uh, go to your mobile device and you text KBOO to 44321. Uh, you can also go to kboo.fm or kboo.org and uh, click on the donate button there. And you can also do the old-fashioned way. Go to uh, mail, mail it to KBOO at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, 97214. And uh, we really, 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 really appreciate your support. You know, we're going to uh, hopefully going to open up the station back up after all these years with uh, COVID protocols and uh, in the in the new year. And we need to do a lot to make that happen. So you would really kind of cushion us in our transition. There's a particularly crucial time to support the station. And uh, Medea, I, I, Wait, I, Paul, I, can I just add my two cents there? Yeah. Today? That with this Ukraine war, it's a particularly important time to support KBOO because if you listen to the mainstream media, you will have no understanding of what's going on there. And that is just uh, uh, letting us sleepwalk into potentially a nuclear war, a World War III. So where do you turn to to get uh, alternative views? Well, you got to turn to your community radio station. So I just want to say I'm going to make a pledge to... Uh, the radio station, and I hope we get those 14 other subscribers that you called for because, wow, this is a time when we need you more than ever. Yeah, you know, I I, I always ask guests like yourself uh, the, the question, well, you know, do, are you able to get on, you know, CNN? Uh, are you even able to get on <laughs> NPR? You know, uh, w w what are your outlets for, for getting... <laughs> you're laughing. Well... I'm, I'm laughing because we try hard to get onto uh, cable TV and reach millions of viewers. We try hard to get our op-eds in the Washington Post, and we love the outlets that we do get on, like yours, um, but we can't get on the other ones. You know, it's funny, Paul, because we do get on TV in other countries, uh, even close by, like uh, like Canada. 
Uh, I'm on shows in Mexico. I'm on shows in uh, European countries, but not here in my own country, which is just unbelievable. I can't even get onto NPR, although, you know, some of the local NPR stations, but really, um, it is remarkable that people with alternative views have such a hard time getting onto uh, corporate um, uh, press. Well, there you have it. Another reason to support this vital community resource, KBOO. Uh, I do want to uh, let people remind people that this is a listener call-in program as well. And the number to call in for this uh, rare and unique opportunity to interact with Medea Benjamin for the hour, who's, uh, you know, got a lot of things to do. She's a very busy activist, so her time is precious. So if you could, uh, you know, make your questions uh, short and concise or your comments, 503-231-8187, 503-231-8187. Okay, so... Um, so let's talk about, and I, I should look up in the book. I just can't remember the, you know, the president who, uh, a couple before Zelensky, who uh, actually, I guess he was, was he there during the Minsk Accord, who, you know, made some overtures toward Russia, made some overtures towards the EU. The, the process of actually getting into the EU was so long and painful. They said maybe 20, 30 years that... You know, he kind of lost patience. Anyway, these these leaders. Uh, what what's his name? The former president of Yugos of uh, Ukraine. Well, you had Viktor Yanukovych. That's it, Yanukovych name. So he was a crucial figure. Um, so maybe just just really quickly, we don't want to you know get into all the details. Talk a little bit about the the politics, and then of of course there's the. Um, the uh, neocon Vic- Victoria Newland, who was there in 2014, talk about the importance of 2014, and then we'll get to Zelensky. Well, the importance of 2014 is that there was a, a popular uprising against an elected but corrupt uh, government of Viktor Yanukovych, and it was hijacked, hijacked by the extreme right in Ukraine. Uh, neo-Nazi elements that turned it into a violent coup, but it was also hijacked by the United States. And that um, uh, devilish figure of Victoria Newland, who keeps popping up under Democratic and Republican administrations, but she's part of the uh, neocon community that really thinks the United States has the right to impose its will on other countries. And certainly in the case of Ukraine, thanks to this leaked phone call she had with the U.S. ambassador there, we see a glimpse of the extent of her and the U.S. role in uh, conniving uh, about who would be the next head of government in Ukraine. We also saw her in a very symbolic act of being out in that Maidan Square with the protesters, handing out sandwiches and cookies, which, Paul, I think... Well, um, people should liken to January 6th uprising in the United States when the mob was trying to storm Congress and overthrow the U.S. government. What if there were a Russian official out there handing out goodies to the protesters and saying, you know, go, 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 overturn your government? That's exactly the kind of equivalent of what the U.S. was doing in Ukraine. Um, So... 
uh, it's important to understand when we talk about interference in other countries' elections, as we've heard here in the U.S. that the Russians did, let's remember the U.S. unfortunately does this all over the world uh, and did this in Ukraine. And the new government turned from one that was uh, uh, pro-Russian to one that was pro-Western, and it led to the breakaway republics in the Donbass. It led to Russia taking over Crimea, uh, which is where it has an important base that it wasn't about to lose, and um, really, you know, was part of the pathway to lead to this war that's going on right now. So before we go to our first caller, um, who will be Rob, so just uh, hold on just a second. Just the the chapter, the first chapter of the book, How 2014 Set the Stage for War, it just is just so rich with the, these details that I, you know, people said, oh, you know, talked about neo-Nazi involvement and, and this and that. And you never, you never really got a really, I never really got, because again, I just didn't delve into it like you did, you know, and again, kudos for doing that research, you and your co-author, Nicholas Davis, um, and and, being, and br- bringing that to, to us. But the, the, you know, I finally got it. I finally got not just the deep historical, the, you know, the Ukrainian involvement, you know, co- collaboration with the Nazis in World War II, which, you know, is a lot of people, a lot of the current neo-Nazis hark back to, but just the, the current history, how, how, what a crucial role that the f- extreme right played in that uprising, you know, directly on the square at Maidan Square, and and then t- through to the the creation of the Atsov Battalion, then the now the Atsov Regiment, it's just an incredibly important history. So let's uh, bring Rob into the conversation. Go ahead, you're on the air. Hi, good morning. Um, I really, really, am ha- I'm really happy you're having this conversation. I'm happy that uh, Medea, I love your work. I really want to buy the the book, uh, the Ukraine book you put out, and I want to gift it to a lot of the other, what you said, the opposition within what, you know, we would consider the Democrats or the progressives now. And I wanted to mention, I think what's happening is there's been kind of like a doubling down on it. People who were convinced that Russia was the bad guy and Putin's the enemy and there was no provocation. It was completely unprovoked. It seems like there's Democrats who are finally waking up to it and they are uh they're like doubling down it's like they can't admit that they were wrong now and so um i think it's more critical than ever to really be pushing this but i wanted to um uh uh i wanted to say that i think the the democrats in office are abandoning any effort is there any politician that you think can that we can support and rally behind and try to get an anti-war thing because bernie sanders just uh he just can he just he just stepped down his whole uh, Yemen uh, conflict resolutions war effort, and it's like, where do we turn? Where, where can we turn as uh, uh, through this system, and who can we support <laughs> to try to do this? Well, I laugh because um, it's a it's a great question, but a sad answer. Um, of the thirty progressive Democrats who signed that very 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 mild letter saying. Thank you, President Biden, for all the support you've been giving Ukraine, and we've been giving economic and military aid, but on top of that, you know, maybe it's a good time for some negotiations. And they were slammed down so quickly that the letter was withdrawn within 24 hours, and many of the signers said, oops, I'm so sorry I signed that letter. Um, There's one person 
in in the 30 who stood by the letter and even went on national television on CNN to stand by it, and that's Ro Khanna from California. Um, so if you're looking for someone, he might be uh, the one. On the other hand, there are members of the Republican Party, some of them the most extreme right-wing uh, members that we would disagree with on all kinds of things, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, but have come out saying good things on this one and actually are pushing for an audit for where that money is going, who is ending up um, with those weapons, who is getting all the, uh, where are those billions of dollars going. Um, so we have to shore up the progressive Democrats and tell them to come out and say that letter they signed was uh, the right thing to sign. We should be calling for a ceasefire in negotiations, and we want you to come out publicly and say that. So whether it's Earl Blumenauer or any of your representatives there in the Portland area, we need them to speak up. Uh, right now we're calling for a Christmas truce. This will be uh, over after Christmas, and we're not assuming it's going to happen, uh, but it's a good organizing tool to tell them to come out for a Christmas tree. Thank you. That's, that's remarkable words. I've been following Rokana, the Christmas truce. I'm going to start saying that everywhere. And actually, uh, there's not, I'm not trying to bring up another show, but there's another individual by Tom Hartman who started advertising on KBU. Um, he has refused to have you on his show. Uh, and he says it's because he doesn't want to promote the infighting amongst Democrats. But I've been trying to call him out every week because he can only call once a week. And so I think we should be trying to I, I'm going to try to I'm going to tell him I'm going to like, I don't know, <laughs> uh, uh, dare him to get you on because he can't talk about the subjects. And it's unfortunate because he's doubling down on the side that he first committed to. And I think it's pathetic. Okay, well, thank you very oh, much. Well, for thank you, and thanks for doing that. You know, I'm an old friend of Tom's. I used to be on the show all the time, and I've been trying to get on on, uh, on this issue and can't. So, yes, any help yeah. would be much appreciated. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, always good to hear you. We had another caller who uh, just wanted to know, the here again, the title of the book. And again, it's War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict, out on OR Press. And I have linked to them on the on my program page at uh, kboo.org, um, Wednesday Talk Radio, um, and you can uh, go there to if if you want to order a book. That's one place you can do it. I keep looking up at Powell's. I um, mean you know, that's the the big independent bookstore here in Portland, and it always says it's out of stock. So I don't know if you just uh, had a, a limited print run and it's been selling out. If uh, you know, if it is out in the bookstores, do you know anything about that? Uh, it was sold out, but it's uh, been reprinted and should be out there again. And I hate to tell people to buy on Amazon, but if you do, which of course is convenient, um, we need you to write a review because there are some on the other side that have bought the book just to be able to write a nasty review um, so people can help us out in that way as well. Okay, and I... I uh Neglected to mention when I did my uh, uh, my uh, reminder about our end of the year membership drive, which I'm going to talk about again in just a few minutes, that uh, for a a sixty dollar donation, um, you can get a copy of this book, uh, and uh, so you can do uh, two good things at once: you can support the station, and you can uh, improve your understanding of this crucial, crucial, crucial issue. And after we go to our next caller, James, I'm just going to ask you sort of maybe repeat, be thinking about this, you know, just why, 
why should be people be paying more attention than I think most people are? There's a sort of weariness. There's just a, you know, there's a COVID weariness. There's just general world weariness. I just think people are kind of like there's there people are traumatized. There were. It's just a, a difficult time, and I, you know the the bombardment in the media, the the lack of of talking about what you're talking about, media. It's it's kind of swimming up to, against this really raging current against us almost. Anyway, so we we need these kind of handholds to to help us through this time. And your book is one of those handholds. I think I was going. Well, some- I'm so glad that it's a. Uh, a possibility for people to give a $60 donation and get this book is a great deal. Um, as you say, a win-win, support the station, get informed, and be able to talk to your relatives over the holiday season uh, who probably don't think uh, in the same way and maybe are not uh, as informed. Uh, but this will give you a lot of key arguments to use when you talk to friends, relatives, colleagues, who are caught up in the mainstream narrative that this was totally unprovoked, that there is a victory around the horizon, that if we just send in uh, more billions of dollars, uh, we can uh, see the Ukrainians get back every inch of territory, including Crimea. I mean, these are just uh, irrational arguments, but they're the ones put forth by the media. So this book will help you and help the station. Right on. Oh, so let's go to our next caller. That would be James, if you're still with us. Go ahead, James. Yeah, good morning. Um, I'm really glad you guys are having this conversation. I think that one thing, and I, I apologize, I didn't tune in at the top of the hour, so I'm just kind of coming to this a little late, so I don't know what you talked about, what you haven't, but I think one thing that really pe- people really miss about this whole situation with Ukraine is that this is, I mean, you know, people were so concerned you know, with the, the U.S. literally spent 75 years sabotaging the USSR, you know, and it was, you know, and it was because, you know, it's like they just, there couldn't be another system of doing things in the world. You know, it's kind of like what you're seeing now with China, where, you know, they, they want to, they want, they're bringing up Red Scare tactics again. But, you know, the one thing that people miss is that a lot of what we're seeing with Russia and Ukraine is because of the illegal dissolution of the USSR with the Western meddling, you know, U.S., NATO, what have you, in the affairs of the USSR, enforcing a dissolution of it and then plunging the whole, you know, all of the Soviet, former Soviet states into bankruptcy and impoverishment almost overnight, the selling off of state assets. I mean, this, I mean, this Ukraine conflict... You know, people want to blame Russia, but it's like Russia, you know, Putin, you know, people are like, oh, Putin this, Putin that, but Putin, like Saddam Hussein, is a product of Western meddling. Same thing with Zelensky. You know, Ukraine used to produce high-level technological goods that were shipped out all over the world, and now they're barely scraping by to sell, like, sell potatoes or something. You know, I mean, it was the, 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 the irrational fear of communism from the West literally forced an entire an entire country an entire republic back in time to where people are literally struggling to get by and you're seeing this type of you're seeing this type of rhetoric come up again with china and it's i just i it's so frustrating because it's like people are talking about how like Zelensky's a good guy but he's not you know what i mean and it's like they want to have a good guy bad guy situation but 
you know, it's it's literally just America doing what it does best to you know to countries that it doesn't want to see improve outside of what they think is good and right in the world. Medea? Well, you bring up a lot of really critical issues. I mean, look how the U.S. wanted to uh, drag uh, the Soviet Union into a war with Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, that really led to its demise. And this is similar when you hear the Secretary of Defense from the United States, Lloyd Austin, uh, say that we must weaken Russia. It really is saying Mm -hmm. we want this war to keep going on and on and on because um, we're not as concerned about the Ukrainians dying uh, as we are about using this as an opportunity to weaken Russia so that it will not be a strong ally with China. And this is just... Exactly. uh, (laughs) And you know, and you you brought up Afghanistan too. Like, Osama bin Laden was a part of that anti of that anti-communist sentiment they set up they i mean they set up they set up osama bin laden out there to be a, to be like a to be a disruptor against communism spreading out into the middle east and now like what like 40 years later it's like all of a sudden oh you know osama bin laden is a terrible person we need to kill him it's like you set him up <laughs> you well, know, well the other the resources yeah. okay the other thing you're you're um your your comments bring up is what are we setting up now in Ukraine with all these weapons that are flooding in? If the weapons that we flooded into Afghanistan, the Middle East led to uh, Al Qaeda and to ISIS, you know what is going to yep. come out of all these weapons on the black market? Uh, that we even hear the the president of Nigeria saying they're showing up in his country um, in yep, in the hands right. of these terrorist organizations. So, yeah, one of the uh, with the goal of trying desperately to keep U.S. hegemony in a, a world that's already changed and is a multipolar world. Um, you have mm-hmm. the, the U.S. flooding these weapons that are just uh, creating havoc. OK, thank you, James. We're going to have to let you go. We got a couple other callers. Appreciate. Always good to hear from you. Um, so, uh, again, I'm speaking with Medea Benjamin. Um, you're listening to KBOO Wednesday Talk Radio. I'm the host every week, Paul Rowland, and uh, I'm speaking again with Medea Benjamin, a uh, longtime ac- anti-war peace activist, uh, most prominently now uh, for 20 years working with the group she uh, co-founded, uh, Code Pink, Women for Peace, and uh, she has a new book out war- with uh, her co-author, Nicholas Davis, War in Ukraine, Making Sense, of a senseless conflict, and of course, in a, in a way, it's a, it's sort of paradoxical because um, saying it's a senseless conflict uh, it, it makes a, a good headline, but obviously, in making sense of it, it because uh, I, I guess I, what I'm saying is people, you know, in some you know people's eyes kind of glaze over again. There's a sort of a weariness that sort of sets in when it's it's just hard to, you know, you have to do you know some hard. Uh, you know, a certain amount of mental work to actually try to parse through what's coming at us and and try to actually get enough of the context that you can feel like you really are making sense. So to a lot of people, it is just this sort of, oh, it's this terrible thing that's going on. And, and you know, the, the sort of the emotional human reaction, which is a totally valid one, which is, damn, it's terrible what's happening there. It really is. The idea of you know, just these continual bombings of these cities 
in, in a targeting of uh, you know electricity infrastructure. It just it's it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal, and and everybody's heart should go out to them. But it, it, it it's not helping to end it by just sort of stopping there with that emotional reaction and not really trying to understand it. And I again, I once again applaud you. And uh, you've got a lot of really good uh, uh, blurbs on here uh, from you know Noam Chomsky, Chris Hedges, just a whole lot of really other other good thinkers out there who uh, you know if people you know are still in in doubt about you know whether they want to plunge into this and uh, may perhaps even maybe uh, throw a little money our way sixty dollar uh, membership uh, pledge will get you a copy of this book. Um, and uh, I think I told our membership uh, director 75, so uh, forgive me if there's any confusion. I'll, I'll work that out. Don't worry. Anyway, um, you can uh, uh, you can uh, actually, uh, uh, you know, even just tell my uh, board operator when you call if you want to copy this book and uh, give your information. Uh, sorry, Ty, to throw that on you, but um, and maybe we can uh, make it a little easier for everybody. Anyway. This is a really great conversation. We only have 15 minutes left. And uh, let's go to our next caller. Elliot, you are on the air if you're still there. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I uh, have an understanding that uh, I don't mind that, you know, Russia gets Crimea back because geopolitically, Russia was always a great power and needs access to the Black Sea. But I'm on the side of the kind of, quote-unquote, dissident leftists, including, just to take an example, Bill Weinberg in New York, who refers repeatedly to pseudo-left disinformation on Ukraine, uh, you know, from kind of party line, uh, making excuses for Putin. Uh, Has anybody done that today? The society, well, yeah, but let me say why. I mean, the main point of the the orthodox uh, strident left is that, you know, we shouldn't have pressured, you know, the Russians with expansion of NATO. But that all goes back to the fact that in World War II, right before it, uh, with the Baltic states and right after it with Poland and Czechoslovakia, there was a, a supermassive Stalinist crime, and this, the decision was, was made in the 1990s to never let that crime repeat itself. And on top of that, I sympathize with how badly we uh, mishandled the economic reform of the Soviet Union. I consider the Russians to be an integral part of Western Western civilization. But with the bad things that happened in Russia, Russia became the first state in human history to have a murder incorporated like mafia having uh, a say in the use of thermonuclear weapons. And, you know, you can't, you know, the orthodox left, you know, just shrugs its shoulders over at Gray Zone or wherever and says, well, you know, we have to feel sorry for them, you know. They're the most terrifying thing on the on planet Earth right now, having the mafia with thermonuclear well, weapons. Medea, How can Medea Benjamin want that? Well, let's let her let's let her respond. She's right here. Yeah, I, I don't want Russia or the United States or any country to have thermonuclear weapons. Uh, that's why we've been doing so much to support the UN treaty banning nuclear weapons. 
Uh, I think the U.S. is a terrible uh, force in the world in terms of our invasions and destructions of other countries uh, like Iraq. Uh, and I condemn the U.S. and I condemn Russia. I mean, I'm, I'm against uh, all wars and uh, all countries that use their military might to invade the sovereignty of other nations. Uh, but I do think we should get back to the issue of what do we do about it now? Do we continue to throw weapons in and think this is going to uh, result in a victory? You talk about the Donbass. Well, you know, let's, let's it, it's going to have to end at the negotiating table and hopefully with an internationally supervised referendum where the people of Donbass can make their own decisions. But it's not going to happen militarily. So let's 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 get into that a little a little more. We you know you mentioned Crimea, mentioned Donbass. These are again, sort of abstract uh, words to most people. And again, in your book War in Ukraine, making sense of a senseless conflict, you talk about the history of that. that you know the idea. Maybe people think, oh, you know, Ukraine's going to have to give up those regions. They're going to have to. But you talk about the 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 very real process. Again, going back to Minsk too for some kind of political autonomy. Now, there's political, politically autonomous regions all over the world. Italy has them. Many countries have autonomous, different kinds of status, where there's, you know, it's, it's part of the country, but it has, and that, isn't that what Minsk II was heading towards? Not, you know, not you know, wrenching those uh, t- t- regions in eastern Ukraine and giving them back to Russia. That wasn't the idea, right? Absolutely. That was autonomous within uh, the, the uh, structure of the Ukraine uh, entity as a state. Um, so that's what it was for. And as we talked about earlier, uh, it wasn't meant to even been imp- be implemented by those who signed it. So, um, yes, the, the uh, issue about Donbass is a contested territory. Uh, it needs to be settled through a uh, internationally monitored referendum so that people can decide do they want to be autonomous as part of Ukraine, do they want to be part of Russia, or do they want to be an independent entity? I mean, there are many different scenarios for that, as you say, uh, exist in many places around the world. Uh, you know, borders are always changing, and um, they're, they sh- it should be determined by the people themselves. And, and let me just get a, let me get just get a quick response a final a final issue. The difference between the U.S. and Putin is that Putin's explicit military strategy from Chechnya to Syria to the Ukraine is to maximi- absolutely maximize collateral damage to civilians, and that's not the explicit policy of the United States. That's why a, a lot of people on the left don't like Putin. <laughs> Well, I don't like Putin, and were I in Russia, I would probably be in jail for protesting. But the U.S. has done far more damage in its invasions overseas. Uh, Even the U.S. Department of Defense uh, admitted that the U.S. did more damage in its shock and awe campaign uh, in the first 24 hours than in the first 24 days of the Russian invasion. Uh, The U.S. has targeted uh, infrastructure uh, constantly in its invasion of other countries and has led to the deaths of millions of people and the displacement of millions of people. So, you know, if, if, if you look at what Russia is doing with horror, which I do, um, we have to look with horror at what the U.S. has been doing around the world. And, you know, we also just should, should 
mentioned because it came up with one of the callers uh, that even in places where it's not the U.S. directly invading, uh, U.S. weapons are being used, as in the case of Yemen, that's been just an absolutely disastrous eight-year war uh, on some of the poorest people in the world, and uh, the world not coming out to support the refugees and displaced there as they have been supporting the people in Ukraine, and the U.S. companies gaining uh, tremendous profits from selling those weapons to the Saudis. And thank you for calling. Elliot. Thank you. Always good to hear from you and, and the other callers. Um, we have a, a Greg. Maybe you might be our last. Uh, we might be able to squeeze one more, but we're coming down to the end of the hour. And uh, once again, just a, a quick reminder. Again, uh, you can go to KB. You can you can uh, text KBO to four four three two one. You know, you can even do that while you're listening to the show. Used to be, we, you know, we had these phone banks. We might get back to that system in the back room behind me here in the KBU studios in Southeast Portland. And we had all these great volunteers, very lively scene. You know, COVID's changed so much in this world. And uh, and you had to you know, kind of interrupt and call and be on the phone for a few minutes, which was great. It's nice to interact, you know. And, uh, and we'll be opening up again, and you'll be able to interact with us, hopefully, in the new year. But uh, for now, it's just oh so easy. Just uh, go to your mobile device. As I said, you can, you know, you can multitask and just uh, text KBO to 44321 or go to our website, kboo.fm. And as I said, it looks like it's going to kboo.org. I don't know what's up with that. I probably should have found out. But I believe either one will get you here and just click on that donate button or you can mail it in to uh, KBOO at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, 97214. Okay, um, we only have Medea on for another less than 10 minutes. Uh, Greg, go ahead, you're on the air. Hi there. Um, so, Medea, I want to uh, congratulate you for trying to start an anti-war movement. It has been driving me insane that we can't seem to break through and Many, many people that were around when the Iraq war started are still here in America, and somehow they can't seem to remember what a war is. Um, we've managed to make the uh, civilians there in Ukraine worthy victims, in Chomsky's memorable phrase. Um, we have many people right now, children that are starving by the thousands in Afghanistan. They are unworthy victims. But I have to talk about Crimea. Again, been driving me crazy. This entire thing is about the warm water port, Sebastopol, that's on the Crimean Peninsula. Putin wants a land corridor to that so he could supply it. He wants to secure the water supply for the peninsula. This is where the all-important warm water port is that services the... Uh, uh, submarines that have the ICBM missiles on them. He's not going to let that go, ever. Okay, uh, we're, 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 we're almost out of time. Let me just let Medea respond. Thank you for calling, Greg. Go ahead, Medea. Well, I think the caller is totally right. Uh, Russia is not going to let that go. Look, the U.S. has uh, about 800 military bases around the world. Just look at the one in Guantanamo that it's been occupying illegally for so many years and just will not let go of. Uh, even though it doesn't need it. Um, and Russia has less than 20 overseas military bases, most of them very close to Russia. Uh, and the one in Sebastopol is an extremely important one that the Russians are indeed not going to let go of, which is why it's just 
criminal to allow this war to keep going and more and more Ukrainians to be killed and displaced and hurt uh, for a, a conflict that is not going to end with the Russians leaving Crimea. And I did have a, 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 a caller, a listener, uh, write in on my uh, KBOO Wednesday Talk Radio Facebook page, which I always forget to mention because I don't use it that much, but I could. America is the only country to use nuclear weapons in an unprovoked act, extreme cruelty against Japan. That's uh, referring back to our previous callers. Um, rightful um, discussion of uh, the danger of nuclear weapons in the hands of Putin, but uh, neglecting that the U.S. has by far the biggest nuclear arsenal in the world and has had so many close calls that could have led to just just horrible, horrible, horrible destruction, more than even the destruction at Hiroshima and Nagasaki that the U.S. did do. Okay, um, uh, Medea, we uh, have to wrap this up, and I'm sorry to Francis, we are just so close to the end of the hour. Again, why, you know, why should pe- pe- people be paying more attention? I, I like to, I've, I've done a whole bunch of shows on the uh, relation between the military and climate change, something that I really only started focusing on more in the past year or so, and just how the militaries are just the vast contributor, both the vast contributor to uh, global climate change, the dis- destabilization of the climate, and also the preventer of anything happening on climate change. In this war in Ukraine, you know, that's maybe not the the thing that jumps most to people's mind, but it does to me because it's coming at us like a, a class 10 hurricane, this climate change, and continuing these global geopolitical insanities is is just preventing us from dealing with that and you know we could list both you and I could list a hundred other crucial crucial things that that those resources could be going to. So talk again. Why should be people you know not just pick up your book but be paying more attention to this war in Ukraine? Well, I'm glad you connected to the climate issue because as we're trying to rebuild this anti-war movement, we need climate activists. They have to understand that uh, the uh, the, uh, possibility of a nuclear war could be uh, a destruction of the entire planet. Uh, Blowing up of the Zaporizhia nuclear plant could spread radiation throughout Europe. Uh, The uh, destruction that the military causes on uh, Ukraine is is inconceivable. And uh, all of the uh, production and use of those weapons is uh, destroying the planet. But then on top of it, as you said, the resources that must be uh, invested in now the loss and damages fund that was set up at the la- last COP27, um, that should be going to alleviate the uh, the consequences of the climate crisis on the global south. And instead, it's going to perpetuate uh, a war So I agree with you. Anybody who cares about the climate has to care about ending this war. And I just want to end with saying people can go to peaceinukraine.org, become part of that coalition, either as individuals or as organizations, and join us as we call for days of action like January 14th, Martin Luther King Day. Uh, and other events that we're putting on to uh, build a movement that can force our government to call for a ceasefire negotiations instead of more war. Okay, I will let you go. Thank you so much, Medea Benjamin. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. It's been great, Paul. Bye-bye.
Okay, again, peaceinukraine.org, and her organization is uh, Code Pink. You can find them easily. Just one last appeal. Thank you, everybody, who's donated during this hour. I don't know who you all are, but I thank you in advance. And you can get a copy of Medea Benjamin's book, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict, with a minimum $60 donation. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Ty, for operating the board. And uh, I don't know what's coming up next. It could be Pear, Fight the Empire. It could be something else. I thank you for listening. I'm Paul Rowland for Wednesday Talk Radio and KBOO. Bye. Listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM. The time is 8:59 a.m. Next up is the dirt bag. You are tuned to KBOO, Portland. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO 